Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. As always, I'm Brett Chisholm. And I'm Josh Evans. Today, we talk about why we started zapping our brains to achieve a mental flow state. We touch on season three of Westworld and Ozark, and then get those video game thumbs ready, because Josh is going to lead you down the well and into the world of Hollow Knight. WWJD. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Hey, Brett, have you been using your uh, TDCS machine lately? Oh, you're talking about my uh, transcranial direct current stimulation machine? How very audience aware of you. <laughs> yes, that is exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I've been using it every day. They yeah. say to power up your brain 20 minutes of it, 20 minutes a day. This is starting to sound like a commercial, but I've I've been using the thing for uh, years off and on, man. Two different kinds. How about yeah. you? Well, I've actually burned out my first TDCS machine. I'm I'm also on my second. But yeah, it's man, for the longest time, it was a standard part of my routine. And unfortunately, that's been slipping a little bit lately. But I'm planning on getting back on the trolley with the TDCS and starting to use it every day. What, you know, for anyone who's not familiar with TDCS, the, uh, like, you know, like you said, the uh, transdermal direct current stimulation, it's this machine that you put on your forehead, or I guess, Yours is a little bit more flexible than mine. You can place the uh, electrodes at different parts of your body. But essentially what you're doing is you're passing this very low current through your forehead scalp into your prefrontal cortex. And you know, they, they say this thing has a lot of uh, a lot of uses and advantages. You know, they've I believe it's been used in some medical treatments for like treatment with epilepsy um i'm sure there's a lot of a lot of other stuff that i have no idea about but what i use it for and what i think you use it for is it's like a flow state generator you know they say that the tdcs machine um when you pass these when you pass these low currents into your prefrontal cortex it induces something called transient hypofrontality which is this uh it's this mental state that under certain conditions, the focused thinking part of your brain gets a rest and that allows some of the other automated parts and functions to become more dominant. And, you know, anyone that's familiar with the concept of flow, uh, you're probably aware that uh, that shutting down of like the thinking part of your brain and kind of letting yourself go on autopilot is a big part of flow. And so that's more or less what this thing does. You know, I've the way that I first heard out uh, heard about the TDCS machine was actually on one of my favorite podcasts, Radio Lab, which actually used to be on uh, WNYC, so it was technically public radio, but I always consumed it via the podcast app. But um, they're going to get a big a great- bump from this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're welcome, Radio Lab. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, so I think the episode was called Nine Volt Nirvana, and they tell this just incredible story of this journalist that goes through like a sniper course. And I, I don't think this person had really a lot of familiarity with firearms. You know, I'm sure they 
either had some background or they were just trained for that kind of introduction. But the the kind of premise was this journalist went through this like sniper course and then put on a TDCS machine that, like you said, it's it was like a focus helmet is kind of how they build it in this episode. But then she went through the course again and she describes feeling like just, like you said, in a flow state in the zone, just totally able to push distractions out of her mind, focus on the task at hand. Her um, accuracy just, you know, increased. She kind of like ended and was like, oh my gosh, that it just felt like just a few minutes went by when it was like a 20 minute course that she had just done again. So, I mean, even her subjective experience changed and her performance improved. So um, I'm looking at a website right now that I use to um, figure out, since I have a little bit more flexibility, some of the TDCS machines out there on the market are um, kind of like right on, right above your eyes, basically, um, over your, kind of like in in between your temples a little bit and a little bit higher, just somewhere on your forehead, they whereas say, mine... They say you want um, it like as high on your forehead as you can get away from your eyebrows, so as close to your hairline as possible. At least that's what mine does. Gotcha. Well, mine actually, um, it's two separate electrodes, both wired with a positive anode and a negative uh, cathode. And so you can put them on different parts of your body. And actually, the montage that I use is one that's associated with this DARPA study, and it's accelerated learning. So the negative, the, um, the cathode goes on my left shoulder. But I use it when I study, and you know I do it 20 minutes a day, and I definitely feel like it improves my performance for the day. Now, how much of that is a placebo effect? Honestly, I don't know. There, there absolutely might be some placebo effect. I will concede to that. But there have been nearly 5,000 TDCS research studies to date, and this website says scientists have uncovered numerous electrode placement montages, and there's been hundreds of hours of reading through thousands of scientific studies and user reports. So you can find the scientifically validated information if you look for it. You know, I, you don't want to just um, build something yourself and start, you know, there, there is a lot of stuff online, a lot of warnings about people that are going over like four milliamps and doing like homemade stuff. Like you can find a good TDCS that does not go over two milliamps, which is the highest recommended just as a safe and already scientifically studied um, amount of electricity. You can find stuff for like a hundred bucks, 150 bucks. That's not going to hurt you or shock you. And you can find good information that's been scientifically backed and studied. I think it's awesome. I mean, mine was 80 bucks. I got it on Amazon you know, I first heard about TDCS through the same podcast, through 9 Volt Nirvana on Radio Lab. You're welcome, Radio Lab. And <laughs> I, uh, if it had been any other podcast, I almost certainly would have just like blown it off. It's just because there's, there's so much like, not that all new age stuff is crap, but there's so much new age crap that, you know, it's just, there's no research backing it up. It's all just, uh, anecdotal experience, but you know, crystals, when, we're looking at you exactly. <laughs> That's uh, hey, crystals are real, man. What are you talking about? There's a lot of science on crystals, all right. <laughs> but uh, 
the uh, you know that with the TDCS with the story they did on Radiolab, that really just like you know raised a green flag in my mind. It's like these guys really do their research and then they know what they're talking about. So I pretty much immediately went home and looked it up for myself. And I was surprised that this is just like a consumer product that you could purchase, you know, within almost anyone's budget with just a little bit of a little bit of expendable income. But the the improvement that this thing has brought to my life has been pretty much unparalleled by any other individual device I think I've ever bought. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but I am kind of a flow junkie. And I didn't even realize that I was a flow junkie until you know, maybe the last five years for like, for the longest time, I always kind of avoided looking into flow because again, that seemed like, that just seemed like this real woo woo new agey term that, you know, it seemed just kind of all encompassing of just like, oh yeah, you're in the flow, you're doing good. I didn't realize that flow is this specific term that referenced again, scientifically backed studies of human performance. So you and I have this, uh, you know, there's a guy whose name we think is pretty much the best name that's ever exist- is existed, <laughs> uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, which was... I'm so glad you uh, you said it. Uh, I'll, I'll happily spell it, though, for our listeners. You oh, yeah. Fun? That would actually kind of put into perspective why we like his name so much. All right. First name, M-I-H-A, with the little thing over it, L-Y. Last name, C-S-I-K-S. Z E N T M I H A with the little thing over it. L Y I. He's already a legend. Yeah. Well, he was the, other than having the greatest name in the world, he was also one of the preeminent flow researchers. I mean, some people would even say that he discovered the concept of flow. And the way that he, the way that he defines it is, Flow is being so involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. The ego falls away. Time flies. Every action, movement, and thought follows inevitably from the previous one, like playing jazz. Your whole being is involved, and you're using your skills to the utmost. A simpler definition that I've heard is that skill skill level effortlessly raises to meet the difficulty level. And, you know, if... If you've ever participated in an action sport or, you know, even a mainstream sport, anything where you're performing athletically and you start to get in the zone, that is essentially flow. And like we mentioned earlier, what this TDCS machine does is it induces that transient hypofrontality state. So flow is typically triggered by turning off, you know, like your different parts of your prefrontal cortex, like where your sense of self lives, like where your sense of doubt lives, where your sense of time and expectation of how long things should take, all that is happening in your prefrontal cortex and the TDCS machine switches those things on and off. And so you get into this state where, you know, you're just performing to close to peak and you are... You're not really second guessing yourself. You know, he says like the ego falls away. For me, like what I think about that is, you know, my ego is mostly me making like a Josh decision. Like, you know, like WWJD, what would Josh do? That's like whenever <laughs> I think about ego, you know, I just think like, oh, what, how would I solve this problem? 
And Wait, those bracelets are talking about you? You know it, buddy. Oh. There's one thing I'm good at. It's branding. Gotcha. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, buy some merchandise. <laughs> so, you know, like not not thinking about like an intentional decision based on my life experience and also not second guessing myself. Those are kind of the advantages I get from using the TDCS machine. Well, I'm really interested to see where this research goes. And it's something that I love about the whole aspect of positive psychology. Um, you know, a lot of people's familiarity for, for positive psych probably comes from the triangle that they may have seen if they studied a little psych in high school or in college, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And you're kind of building a base um, of your f- physiological needs, your you know, need to belong, to have some sense of security. And at the pinnacle is your self-actualization. But to think that psychology all started, you know, thinking about the unconscious mind and thinking about uh, a lot of, I mean, a lot of the focus was on people that were uh, maybe had non-standard modes of thought, right? Or abnormal psychological conditions. Whereas positive psych it, it wants to look at peak athletes. It wants to look at musicians. It wants to look at experts in mindfulness meditation. It wants to study very, very healthy, very, very successful people and try to understand those states and, and bring those states to everybody or just, you know, do the research and let people come to their own conclusions. I don't think that, you know, he's necessarily has a call, a call to action for anybody, but, um, you know, I, th- I think when you do start to look a little bit into just easily accessible information online about, in you know, being in the flow or in the flow state in psychology, I think anybody can relate because I don't think you need to be a professional improvisational musician or a Buddhist monk or a peak athlete. If you're hyper-focused on a task and you're challenged and you lose yourself to that activity fully, you can be in the flow state. And it really, there's no real limit to what can put you in that flow state as long as you meet those other criteria. Yeah, so the reason I mentioned uh, athletic performance was, um, have you read um, the Stephen Kotler book, Rise of Superman? No, I haven't. So Stephen Kotler is another flow researcher, but his so the the book Rise of Superman is about the flow state as viewed through the lens of action sports. And man, I've had this book for a long time. One of our best friends, Derek, gave me this book, and sadly, I say I'll say that I never read it until recently. But once I started reading it, you know, with you know the last six months, it's basically become like my Bible as far as sports performance goes because it's all about sports and the correlation with flow. And, you know, kind of his thesis, like what he posits in the book is that extreme sports athletes are essentially like the, ho- the, the flow hackers of the world. So they're finding a shortcut to flow that, you know, typically they would say, you know, for peak performance in an activity, you need 10,000 hours and you know his his idea is that through extreme sports where you have a high sense of risk and danger and you know your your very performance may 
may be the difference between life and death. It's this shortcut to the flow state. And it's not to say it's the only way to get there, but you know, for me, that's the easiest, uh, that's the easiest avenue to relate to in my own life. So for me, when I think about flow, it always kind of stems from an action sports background, but anything, any kind of creative artistic pursuit, or even something, it could be something that's mechanical that just involves training your body to perform in a certain way. I think eventually with anything like that, you're going to eventually hit a flow state as long as you are interested in becoming better at that thing. Now, have you ever worn your TDCS during an activity? Kind of like in the nine volt Nirvana, how that journalist is wearing like a focus helmet that the, that the government gave her. When we first got ours, um, well, I, I purchased mine with our buddy Derek. We both got them. And uh, when we first got them, I remember we played cornhole with them on. And I mean, it was... <laughs> the ultimate action sports. The ultimate, yeah, man. High risk. Yes. High reward. Everything's on the line. But <laughs> it it definitely made a difference. I've done, I've done it with that. I've also done it playing video games. I mean, mine is sold as a video game uh, accessory. So I've played video games with it. But I found just using it has t- kind of trained me to recognize a flow state when it happens. And then once you realize that, like, oh, my God, like, the last 10 seconds I was flowing, you can kind of latch onto it and keep yourself there. Like, that's happened to me not using the TDCS, just playing games and getting, like, you know, just some amazing streak of play and having the light bulb go on, oh, like, I was just flowing, and then be able to latch on and continue and ride that state out for a little bit longer. Yeah, it's dude, it's fascinating stuff. And, you know, I, I, we're definitely not experts on this subject matter, but it's something that we have experimented with for years. And I really do encourage anyone out there listening to check out that episode on radio lab and maybe get online and do a little bit of your own research and maybe give it a shot. I mean, it is, it is, if we can tap into these, and to these states of mind, uh, what better thing to experience right now than to get lost in some kind of artistic or athletic pursuit? You know, just turning off the thinking mind for a while, I think, is a win. Indeed. So before we move on from this, I did want to bring up one thing I learned from uh, Rise of Superman. This was a a little section of the book that was about it was just it was just titled "Thinking Outside the Box and Lateral Thinking." And how important the etymology of terms can be. So when I, my whole life, you know, ever I always heard thinking outside the box or you know thinking laterally. There's just references to things like that. I'm sure everyone's heard that. And to me, that was always just kind of a uh, a visual description of the type of mind state that people are referencing, but. The way he describes these things, so he's, uh, Stephen Collar said that there are two types of brain function. There is an, an implicit function, and that is a, that's essentially when you're using far flung regions of the brain, like you're, you, you may be using processes from, from different parts of your brain that are not necessarily connected, but, you know, they can, they can bounce off of one, one another and they can, enhance each other's functions 
And then there's the explicit brain function. And that's more like a specific task, you know, like if I wanted to, if I wanted to sit down and write my name out, you know, that's going to be like an explicit function because it's very specific. And he was saying that uh, implicit, when you're using these far-flung regions of the brain, that is what's known to experts as lateral thinking or thinking outside the box because you're not, you know, your, your brain function isn't focused right in the middle of your head on this very specific task. You're, it really does feel like you're using a big swath of your brain from places all around your head. Like if you really think about like all the, all the actions you're performing and that's, you know, that's what people mean is it's kind of like letting go of the specific actions, not being so focused on accomplishing just an individual task and letting your brain kind of freestyle a solution. And it's just, it was just so interesting to me to learn that that wasn't just, you know, a, uh, it wasn't just a, a random way of describing what's happening. It, it really is referencing an actual function of our brain. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm really curious to see if any future research ties psychedelics to flow state. Cause I know John Hopkins is doing all kinds of amazing studies with, uh, psilocybin and, and just like the psychedelic state of mind. But Michael Pullum in his book, changing your mind talks about what the latest scientific research is saying psychedelics do. Cause in the past they thought it might turn on other parts of your brain, but now they're kind of figuring out that there's one part of your brain, the default mode network that actually gets shut off. So it's restricting, they see restricted blood flow with fMRI machines while people are um, tripping on psychedelic drugs. And where is so that, that in the brain? What I'm not sure brain? exactly. Um, I mean, it, I think it's like further into, like, I don't think it's all the way like where your amygdala and where all the snake brain, oldest part of the brain parts are, but it's, it's, it's somewhere more internal and it's, and they kind of liken it. The default mode network is basically engaged and triggered when somebody is depressed. So if you have like a lot of, um, depression or anxiety, or you have like a lot of ego or, you know, I, I thoughts, that's what's lighting up as the default mode network. But when people are on psychedelics, they're seeing that region quiet. And so it's kind of like taking away the conductor, taking away the air traffic controller. So all the other parts of the brain that the traffic is usually controlled or mitigated somehow, it's, it's communicating without any inhibitor. I mean, so that's, that's like kind of exactly what, what they're talking about with transient hypofrontality. That's like what they say is an integral part of flow is turning off the ego. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of correlations at, with all of these kinds of different areas in psychology are going to eventually come together. But I mean, I, that's another great book, um, Changing Your Mind. And Michael Pullum, he doesn't really usually write about stuff like that. He's the plant guy. He's the food guy. He wants to know about where your food comes from, you know. But all of his books are fantastic. But this one was such a departure from his, uh, from what he normally talks about. But, um, you know, and there were obviously all these scientists we're talking about and all these authors are talking about they don't really know. I mean, the brain is the most complex known object in the universe. 
and it's a black box. We don't just like I talked about on the last episode blank. There's so much going on and we can't really see what's going on and how it works. But this fMRI thing, if you look into that, I mean, it may not be as high resolution as we'd like and we still don't exactly know what's going on, but they're every year, every decade, they're more and more saying like, okay, we know this is the visual part. We know this part lights up when you're depressed. We know that, you know, this lights up when you're scared. I mean, they're figuring things out, which is just amazing considering what we're talking about here. I mean, it's, it's the gooey shit in our head. It's strange. It's the most complicated and powerful computer on the planet. We all we get know one of. for free. <laughs> Some of us. Well, yeah, I guess we both got one, so we're good. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, how about your content circuit, man? You've been uh, you've been watching, reading anything new lately? Yeah, just um, got through season two of Westworld, and you know, we kind of talked about how I think you and I had both kind of. I don't know, drifted away from that amazing show for some reason. It just didn't grip me or it was too complicated. I don't know. Some of these, some of these, I mean, it's John Nolan. It's not Christopher Nolan, but you know, they're, they're related and they're both very deep, but Jonathan Nolan and Lisa joy, um, created Westworld. And I, I think they're too smart for me, man. It's especially when the storytelling is not in chronological order. I find it really difficult to follow, but I'm so glad that my wife and I got all cut up on season two because season three is out and it is amazing. Well, if anyone's ever listened to you speak, they'll know you're a big ding dong that has a hard time following anything that's complicated. I When they start cutting up the beginning and the end and the middle, I, I swear to God, it's it just goes over my head, man. I think that's kind of like part of it, right? Time. Like they're, they're trying to intentionally confuse you a little bit, right? That's that's the kind of the feeling I got from the first season of Westworld. That, that was part of the story. Like you're, you're supposed to be kind of lost temporarily. And that is an important part of the storytelling. You know, it's how it all fits together. You're not really, no, that's really revealed until the end. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I should definitely just embrace being lost and just trust that the, you know, they're going to bring it together in the end, which they really did. But I got to tell you, season three, oh, man, it is amazing. You know, like the embracing being lost, what I think about, like, if you ever watched a movie with someone that you started watching it at the exact same time, and then five minutes in, they lean over like, hey, who's that? Hey, what are they talking about? And you're like, how the hell would I know? I've been watching this movie as long <laughs> as you have been. Anytime I have, like, a, a question where, you know, like, I feel like I'm lost, I'm just like, oh, I want to look this up and figure out what it is. It always makes me think of that where I'm just like, if I was asking somebody this personally and they were watching this at the same pace as me, they'd probably just be like, dude, just shut up and watch the show. And that's when I usually realize like, oh, you're probably not supposed to know yet. Like being lost is probably part of it. Well, you remember that time we were watching Limitless together and I was, <laughs> I had seen it once before and I said, hey, dude, those are the bodyguards hands. Remember what you said? <laughs> yeah, I said. Hey, Brett, I haven't had my NZT today, but I can still follow the plot. <laughs> that was one of the best jokes I've ever heard, man. Oh, uh, yeah. So was, what are you watching? Pretty good. Uh, what do you got in your circuit? I just started Ozark Season 3 last okay. night, and I'm already five episodes in. Dude, 
Have you watched Ozark? I did. I watched the first season, but once again, I think I got caught up in 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 life. Jason Bateman is I mean, I almost feel like his value is wasted on comedy. Like comedy is a very noble pursuit, but man, as far as like dramatic acting goes, he's just like he's like the best creepy dude ever. So yeah, he's he's very good. What was that? Did you see that movie too? The Gift. No, he was in that too. I mean, I oh man, e- everything he's in is amazing. So something that he does so well from like the Arrested Development days is he plays the straight man. You know, he was always he was always kind of the guy that by not reacting it would make everyone else's jokes funnier. And what he does in Ozark, you know, Ozark he plays a uh, he plays a criminal accountant which seems like the most boring thing in the world but he is you know he's basically laundering money for all these criminal organizations and he's essentially a criminal straight man like he's almost completely emotionless these crazy anxiety filled scenarios that honestly it's like part of the reason to watch the show is to see how all these things stack on top of each other and the anxiety gets worse and worse but he's such a straight man about it. You know, no matter what happens, he never has an emotional reaction. He's never mad or upset or sad or scared. He's always just like this very neutral baseline while all this crazy crime drama flows around him. It makes for like such an interesting storytelling device because it, it usually you would put yourself into the mind of the main character, but I know for me, there's no way my brain would ever function that way. I would, you know, basically the stuff that happens on the show would shut me down. And so it's so interesting to watch a character like that where it's almost like a different mindset of viewing it where you can't say like, oh yeah, this guy is my analog in this show. Because unless you're a total sociopath, you could never relate that way. So it just gives you like this different perspective on, on everything that's happening. And honestly, it makes me feel like, you know, when something crazy happens, I wish I could react that way. But I don't know if that's even a I don't know if that's even a mindset you can train yourself on. WWJD. Exactly. Yeah. What would Jason Bateman do? <laughs> <laughs> yep, you got to just uh, put the B in uh in uh parentheses, parentheses there in the middle. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm going to have to revisit Ozark. I just I feel like I loved season one, but I felt like I was drowning when I was watching it. Just like what you were talking about. The anxiety. So much going wrong. I mean, I, I have definitely had moments in my life where I have made big mistakes or I've got caught in a lie or I've just done something really stupid. And, you know, you just have that like panicky feeling like, oh, God, you know, now now the consequences of my actions are are upon me. And I just feel like watching that show gives me that feeling that you're just you're just like constantly drowning, but it's so good. Well, maybe it's that's really why they wrote and he plays it as the criminal straight man. Like maybe with all of the anxiety inducing scenarios, you need him to kind of be like the grounding rod for it. Maybe. Otherwise, it may, like you know, that. it might not be interesting. It, it might be like, yeah, this doesn't make me feel good. Maybe you need him to ground you. That makes sense. You know, his wife is just that character is fantastic in that show too. Oh, season three, man. Everything is just, everything just gets so much worse. Highly oh, recommend. Highly recommend. 
All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and after that, we're going to get into some content. The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, climb every 14er in Colorado, or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every single map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so that you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas that you've traveled to. So they offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box. Or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you do that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps that my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Park map. It's covered in pins because... Well, you know, my wife and I, we uh, get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there, done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've been. <gasps> Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps ever. Clear it out. All right, welcome back, listeners. Josh, I heard you got something good. I do. I brought one of my favorite video games of the last decade. Um, so today I'm going to be talking about Hollow Knight, which is a 2017 game created by Team Cherry. They are a uh, they are a video game development team out of Australia. And the interesting thing about this game, and something that I didn't realize going into it, and it, Honestly, if someone had told me this in the beginning, I wouldn't have believed it, is that this entire game was created by three designers and with the addition of one composer doing their music. So really four people created this game. So uh, a little bit of background on the game. Uh, Hollow Knight is a Metroidvania, which if you're not familiar with that type of video game, it's an open world game, which is typically 2D. Uh, it's an explore, uh, exploration-based game with er different areas being gated off by learning new abilities. So you start the game with some pretty standard like uh, attack, jump, basic abilities like that. And as you unlock new skills like double jump and dash, things like that, new areas are opened up for you. So these, act, these uh, upgraded skills act as keys to allow you to access the new areas, and new areas in a Metroidvania are typically accessed by backtracking. And then, usually these games have several boss characters. So, Hollow Knight is a game that follows the Metroidvania for formula pretty well. And the story, which I'll touch on very basically, because honestly, the story is great, but it's not the important thing about this game. 
But the story follows an insect knight, he's just referred to as the knight, on an adventure to uncover the secrets of this this bug world named Hallow Nest. And Hallow Nest is a subterranean maze. It's accessible down the well in this quaint little bug village you start in known as Dirtmouth. So just that idea alone, it, it's so fascinating to me, games or stories that start by going down a well, you know, very Goonies-esque. And so you head down the well, and then what follows is this expansive Metroidvania game where the player explores the world, you upgrade your abilities, you solve platforming puzzles, and if you find them all, uh, defeat 53 unique boss characters. So the gameplay loop on this game, and this is something that is always really important to me on a game, I want the gameplay loop to be interesting i want it to be in these relatively bite-sized segments and you know a good game will have a gameplay loop that repeats over and over and over so as you get further into the game you can kind of zone out and perform the same actions over and over because you kind of understand the flow of the video game so the gameplay loop is you enter a new region of the world the first goal at least for me was always to find a character named the cartographer and the cartographer will sell you a map of the region. Without the map, you're going to be hopelessly lost. So when you enter a new region, you're looking for the cartographer. Once you find that, you're exploring the area, you're searching for upgrades, uh, you're looking for save stations, and you're looking for fast travel spots. Once you find the boss, you usually spend an hour or two trying to beat him because they are very difficult and well-programmed in this game. And then you enter a new area and you do it all again. And as you get further and further, those Metroidvania design elements start to kind of rear their head and you end up backtracking. You may see some areas early on that seem completely inaccessible, but as you unlock some new skill, you know, that, some, that platform that's three, three times your jump height over your head eventually becomes accessible and you can find ways to open up new regions of the map. Now, what makes this game so unbelievable and inspiring to me is when you think of a video game, really any game, I always imagine, you know, a huge team and a massive budget. You know, like like I said, this game was created by really these four dudes. And it was created on a Kickstarter budget of around $58,000, which is so low, and it's so few developers. There's so many skills that go into creating a video game. And really, Hollow Knight was created by Ari Gibson, who was their artist, William Pellin, who was their primary designer, he did a lot of the level designs, their programmer, uh, David Katzi, and then eventually they brought on their com a composer, Christopher Larkin, who he did pin this amazing music for the game that really adds this ambiance to the, the entire thing. So most of the information that I have on the creation of Hollow Knight came from a Game Informer article by David Milner called the making of Hollow Knight. And this game originally started to take shape in 2013. Uh, it was, the seeds of it were created during a game jam. Do you know what a game jam is? No. So game jam are like these short competitions where uh, the hosts of the game jam will present an idea and you'll have two to three days to create a game based on that idea. And then the games are all, you know, like thrown into the pool. People play them. They vote on them and judge them. And it's just kind of like this, this freestyle game designing uh, competition, which 
I had never heard of that until I started to research this, but it's such an awesome idea. So uh, the seeds of the game were created in the, a 2013 game jam called Ludum Dari, which is, in Latin, it means to give a game. It's, it doesn't really translate very well. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the theme of this game jam was 10 seconds. So they were creating these 10-second game loops and what Team Cherry created was a game called Hungry Night, where the character would start to lose health every 10 seconds. So if you weren't constantly defeating enemies and gaining power-ups, after 10 seconds you would die. So it's just kind of a game that was forcing you to play quickly. So the game Hungry Night, they did not do very well in the game jam. Uh, it's still available on Newgrounds.com, which is like a Flash game site, but... It only has a one-star rating, so I wouldn't recommend anyone to go out and hunt down Hungry Night unless you're just kind of nostalgic and you want to see where the, the roots of, of Hollow Knight came from. But Hungry Knight did plant the seeds for what I would consider to be one of the greatest 2D platformers of all time, Hollow Knight. Like the main character and the art style were pulled almost directly from Hungry Knight. And, you know, that stuff was carried over and used as the baseline for the uh, for the Hollow Knight production. Now, yeah, I'm looking at some art right now from Hollow Knight, and it just it looks like almost like a fantastical, like a dream of yeah. like a an imaginary world that's not quite like in in space or underwater, but somewhere between the two. It looks beautiful. Yeah, it is like a it's like a moving masterpiece, and if you're not driving. I would recommend everyone, if, you've, if you're not familiar with this game, just do like what Brett said. Just Google the art of Hollow Knight. It is this beautiful sprite-based artwork. And sprite-based is typically like if you see really smooth, almost like hand-drawn animation style, that's usually sprite-based. And it, you know, in 2D games, you would have like a pixel-based art style, which is real blocky and chunky. It's pretty popular right now. Or sprite-based. And most... You know, honestly, most small production companies don't go sprite-based because from what I understand, it's way more labor-intensive. But what they said they did for their, their artwork is uh, Ari Gibson, they just scanned his, his hand-drawn artwork in and then used that, you know, in whatever their, whatever their art production software was. You know, they created animations and... Um, the different background styles, everything like that was all hand-drawn and then, you know, digitally enhanced. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's very crisp. It's very clean. It's very pleasing. Now, the game does start off pretty monochromatic. And when I first started playing it, I, I don't think it was in the right headspace because I, it took me two tries to really get into this game. The first time I played it for maybe two or three hours and then... You know, it seemed a little deep. The beginning is pretty dark. And I was like, eh, I don't know if this is the game for me right now. But I kept seeing all these amazing reviews for it. So, you know, I, I played this on my Nintendo Switch. And that, you know, that game, that system is great because you can just lay in bed and play. But I felt like I'd burned out everything good that I could find. And I had Hollow Knight sitting in my queue. So I went back and played it again. And after doing some research and seeing all these great reviews, the second time in, I could not put it down once I started. 
this game is over a hundred hours and it pretty much consumed my life for maybe a month and a half, just laying in bed every single night playing hollow Knight when everyone else is sleeping. So if you are turned off initially, if you start playing it, definitely give it a, give it a little bit of time because it will grow on you. I feel like some of the, some of the best things that I've encountered or some of my favorite songs or favorite movies didn't, didn't grip me immediately. I had to sit with it a little bit, or I had to think about it, or I had to rewatch it. And, you know, there's something about maybe like a little extra layer of complexity that makes it less appealing initially, but you really start to, you know, the rewatchability or uh, the ability to listen to it on repeat a hundred times that comes when it, when it's a little, um, just a little more difficult, a little less easy. Pop, pop music is a perfect example. I mean, it's, you know, it sounds amazing. It grips you, but you get sick of it pretty quick when something's just like a little too simple on the surface. Yeah, this is, know, can you relate to that at all? Definitely. This is not the pop music of video games. This is more of like a, like an orchestral arrangement of a video game. You know, this is very complicated and it does involve and require a little bit of investment from the player, not just in time, but also skill. This is a very hard game. You know, it starts off a medium difficulty and it just ramps up and up from there. But one of the one of the important tenets of the game design, uh, this is uh, something that the designer uh, William Pellin said about the controls. He said that really everything started with the controls. Uh, a quote that he, that he had from this article was. The knight has no acceleration or deacceleration on horizontal movement. The jump has a lot of initial lift. Releasing the button cups, cuts vertical speed quickly, and the dash completely arrests vertical movement, shooting you forward instantly. The intention is to make the player feel that at any time, or uh, sorry, any hit they take or mistake could have been avoided right up to the last second. And I will attest that the controls in this game are just pixel perfect it's laser controls you really can start and stop on a dime you can change your trajectory in the air and for a game that's designed around platforming that is vital you know you don't want to feel like floaty or like you're moving on ice you want to feel like he said any mistake you make you could have avoided it if you were just a little bit better and i think that is i mean that's a really important part of anything you're doing especially if you want to get into a flow state you need to feel like your mistakes are your own because so much of learning comes from making mistakes. And if you feel like the system that you're working within is actually like fighting against you, you know, the controls don't work, then you don't like, you don't learn anything from your mistakes. You just learn that the game sucks. Hmm. Ooh, man, that's heavy stuff. That's awesome. I feel like that's probably the most important lesson in life, that's certainly a lesson that I've been shown uh, recently is that, you know, we make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. But the difference between moving forwards with some grace and turning that mistake into a positive is learning from it. If you don't, if you don't learn from your mistakes, you're not going to be going anywhere. That's how you get good at everything. Anything that's hard is going to be 
mistake-based learning. Like so many things you can't even dial in or focus on what you're doing wrong until you do a bunch of things wrong. You have to, you have to pretty much trip and fall before you're ever going to learn to run or fly or anything. I love it. Once they had the controls dialed in, they started working on the map. And for any Metroidvania game, the map is very important because it starts off simply enough, but it essentially becomes a an interconnected maze. So the aesthetic of you know like a bug hive really lended itself well to this to the the game design, and the map does become increasingly more complex. And eventually, you know, finding this cartographer in every area is so important because there's no way you keep track of it all. You would basically you'd be hopelessly lost immediately without the map. But not giving you a map from the beginning is a really important part of this game because it, it just kind of signals that Hollow Knight does not hold your hand. Hollow Knight is going to make you work for everything, including knowing where you are in the world. So... Uh, to kind of soften that blow in, in the level design, uh, each level has kind of its its own unique aesthetic. So, like I said earlier, the game starts off very dark and monotone, but eventually, you you come upon upon these crazy like psychedelic pink crystal caves and these rain soaked cityscapes and these techno yellow beehives. So every area you go into, you can really tell that uh, Pellin and Gibson really flexing their creative muscle to make everything unique and a lot of these environments are really nothing I've seen in a video game before. So the uh, once they had the game map of the controls locked down, they kind of started working on the upgrade system. And Hollow Knight does a really unique thing with its upgrade system. So it has a uh, the powers that you can gather that aid you in your traversal of the world, but also it has this charm system. And the, the charms are these equipable power-ups that kind of change the, the player's abilities in unique ways. You initially start with three charm slots, and then you can upgrade how many charms you can equip as you become more powerful. And some of the charms, like the abilities they give you, one charm is it allows you to see your position on the map, which, again, seems kind of like a given in most games, but they make you use up one of your charm slots for that specific ability. So you're always making a trade-off with anything you do in this game. And so then, it's like getting a smartphone then. Yeah, it's like it gives you like a GPS for the game. Right. <laughs> and that seems like such a standard thing in most video games, but they do not give you that in this. They make you trade off other abilities for that because that really is, you know, it's kind of like that's what this game is. Everything you're doing is you're tr trading one ability for another. You are kind of balancing being lost or feeling like knowing where you are. You get these upgrades where you can mark the map. So my map ended up being this like very complicated uh, patina of markers indicating where I had found different objects and things that I wanted to go back and research. And then, you know, like through the through these charms, like you can also get some charms that make your attack distance longer or things that uh, like magnetize the game's currency so you don't have to go hunt it down. It just pulls in towards you when you gather it. Mm. So, you know, that that gives you this cool ability to build out a character. So instead of just being stuck with the baseline character, through the charms, you can actually build your own custom character and play the game any way you want. Oh, that sounds awesome. 
Yeah, it's really cool. Um, you know, the, uh, I guess the bosses, kind of the last thing I want to talk about with the game. This game, I've, I think I've never played a game that has bosses this difficult. There, there were times when I could come upon a boss and I would almost have to like steal myself for like the next two or three hours of gameplay <laughs> oh, God. To, because they're so, the bosses are so pattern based and they're pixel perfect with their attacks. And again, like when you lose, you feel like it's your fault, but it's, it always feels like it's accomplishable. If you just keep training, you keep fighting, you learn their patterns. Eventually you're going to beat them. And, you know, I never, I never came up against a boss that I couldn't defeat eventually, but every single time when I would get done with this like two to three hour marathon, I would just like set my switch down and sit back and be like, Oh my God, that was the most amazing video game accomplishment I've ever, I've ever done. You know, it's, I got to get on the internet. People are going to definitely want to hear about this. <laughs> it's super interesting. So it definitely, so it definitely gave you like a sense of accomplishment every time you yeah. boss. Yeah. It's amazing. Wow, that's awesome. It's Is really, there a save really checkpoint great. before you, um, get to each boss? I mean, some you, of them, you do you lose some of your progress. It depends on the area. Some of them that they'll place the bosses a pretty far walk from the, uh, you know, from the save point. So, not just fighting the boss, but you also got to fight your way through these like complicated enemy groupings and this like complex platforming uh, challenges before you get to the boss. So you're always kind of again balancing how much health and uh, what kind of build you want to have by the time you get there. So you know it's everything about the game is kind of designed to make it hard, but make it possible in the end eventually. Yeah, that's awesome. So I guess to uh, to wrap it up, you know, this game is universally acclaimed. It's got a 10 out of 10 on Steam, a 9.4 on IGN, a Metacritic score of 87%, over 2.8 million copies sold on almost every major platform. This game, in my opinion, is the absolute pinnacle of the Metroidvania genre. It is unlike anything I've ever played, and it gave me something that I call Hollow Knight Syndrome. This is something I started noticing after Hollow Knight with playing video games. I kind of have the uh, I kind of have a habit of searching out and playing, trying to find like the best example of an independent of a single genre and playing that game to completion. But once I do, just like with Hollow Knight, that genre is almost ruined for me. So after Hollow Knight, it was totally into Metroidvania. So I, I downloaded a bunch of games and every single one of them I was just almost just cripplingly disappointed with because it could not compare to how great Hollow Knight was. And that is, it's kind of a double-edged sword because I wouldn't trade the time that I'd spent with Hollow Knight for anything. But having the inability to find another game in the genre that will scratch that itch, it's kind of sad. You know, it's it kind of comes with the territory, I guess, when you're consuming the best content in, in its class. But it, it is interesting. It's something that's it's really made me notice it with other genres like shooting games and third-person adventure games. Once you play the best one, man, you're always going to have Hollow Knight Syndrome, and it's really hard to go back. Wow. Well, with accolades like that, listeners, if you're not sold on Hollow Knight, get your Bible, pull the bookmark out. What does it say? <laughs> WWJD. What would Josh do? He'd play Hollow Knight. 
Well, thanks, Josh. Please join us next week. We're going to clear some more content out of our brains into yours. Thanks for listening.